about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. morning and uh, welcome to 2020. How are we feeling? Excellent. Um, hope you had a great New Year's Eve. I wonder if on uh, special occasions like New Year's Eve uh, you're like me and not necessarily think about what you're going to do but who you're going to do it with. Um, it's often in those kind of like celebratory moments, so Christmas or birthdays or New Year's Eve, where you think about the special people in your life, which makes it kind of beautiful and hard. Uh, beautiful because you might have spent New Year's Eve with close friends, um, you know, harborside, watching the TV, having drinks, eating, or it might have been a time where you really wanted to spend time with special people and couldn't for a range of reasons. Nonetheless, our heart yearns for this, for this sense of belonging, to be surrounded with people who are special to us, to be known and to know. Which brings us to kind of the question of like, how would Jesus do New Year's Eve? Who would he spend it with? Who's the kind of people that hang with Jesus, who belong with God? And we come to this, as Phil has pointed out, this most remarkable description of Jesus as the friend of sinners, which I find deeply challenging as to the notion of friendship. And we'll get to that in due course. But the way that Jesus goes about showing us the kingdom and the way that he relates to people around him, the depth of friendship he offers, I find not only helps me re-see Jesus, but also redefine how I do friendship. That's our privilege today. Is as, we, as we keep going through Mark's Gospel, as we're doing from now all the way until Easter, we keep bumping into this remarkable person, Jesus. Where we see his, his actions. We hear his words as Mark invites us to be one of the crowd and to follow Jesus on this journey. And whether you've known Jesus a long time or not so long or even skeptical about Jesus, it's our privilege this morning and each Sunday to Easter to follow this journey, to be invited by Mark, as it were, to see Jesus afresh. And so I feel it's a privilege to open up uh, this passage this morning. Do keep Mark 2 open uh, in front of you. Hold me accountable to the scriptures. Um, dig deeper than I will go. Um, I'm going to be doing the first three sort of episodes of this. I mean, Mark is very kind of, and then, and then, and then. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that gets crammed in. Uh, I'm going to leave the Sabbath to next week, but I'll be looking at the first three scenes looking at what it means to be surprised by the power of grace, the scandal of grace, and how we ought to long for and celebrate grace. They're the three kind of headings that we're looking at this morning. If my bopper works. Negative. Oh, clapper or something. Yeah, next slide. Thanks, Frank. Excellent. There we go. Surprise. Um, I, I love this scene. It's, it's, a, it's a passage that I've spoken on many times and in very, very different contexts. I, I love the scene of kind of there is Jesus in kind of this familial space. You know, the people see that he's come home, uh, not to Jesus' home, to their home, perhaps even Peter's home. Peter, we think, is the greatest informant of Mark's gospel. Um, but nonetheless, there is this kind of familial space. He's in a house and it is jam-packed with people. Imagine you're one of them. And there you are, kind of squeezed against the wall uh, with kind of a whole bunch of people around you, uh, sweaty, uh, excited. They're anticipating every word and moment of Jesus. Ever since he kind of entered the scene, go back to Mark 1, a crowd quickly gathers to kind of work out who is this Jesus? 
Who is this one that speaks with authority? And the crowd kind of marvel and follow. And so there you are in the house. And uh, Mark then zooms outside the house, as it were. So you don't know what's happening at this moment because you're in the house. But outside the house is a kind of another predicament, another dilemma. And that is the kind of dilemma of a few friends who have brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus because they believe that Jesus has power to heal their friend in great need. He's been paralyzed uh, since birth, and they believe that Jesus can change that. But their dilemma is not only they, the, kind of the care for the person in need, but they can't even get into the house because you're in there and so are a bunch of other people. Uh, and so what do you do, right? You climb on the roof and dig a hole. And so that's what happens. You're, you're in the house and Jesus is mid-preach and, and, and it's very exciting. He came to preach, right? That's his purpose. We get that in Mark 1. And so you're hanging off those words and, and mid-preach, uh, there's a bit of kind of mud, you know, dirt on the shoulder. And you look up and there's kind of a bit of a hole opening up and a couple of spades. And you're like, what on earth is going on here? And, and as that hole opens up and as a few faces kind of peer in, not only are you a little bit offended and troubled by this, but you're kind of like, the owner of this house is going to be like pretty upset. And, and, and Jesus, like he came here to preach. What is he going to do? Not only is he being interrupted, but I find it remarkable to think of how Jesus gets things demanded of him all the time. Uh, anyone who is a, a parent has this kind of annoying little people demanding things all the time. Uh, Jesus would have felt like that. You know, the son of God walking on earth, having everyone, Jesus, Jesus, fix this. this. And they're good things, but they're just, they're everywhere. And so here is Jesus, mid-sermon, maybe get to his climax, falls short of that because the hole opens up, in comes a paralyzed man, and the crowd would be silent, wouldn't they? Like, what is Jesus going to do here? All lights on him at this moment. Is he going to be indignant? How dare you interrupt me? And how dare you demand of me this? But what does he say? Verse 5, when he saw the faith of the men, you can see faith, right? You can see the faith that these people have. When he saw that, he said to the man that's now lying at his feet, your sins are forgiven. What? <laughs> your sins are forgiven, he says. That doesn't mesh with what's happening, right? Right now, we're in the worst, of, the worst fire season we've ever seen. And it would be like an, a desperately exhausted RFS volunteer coming in through the back of church and he clearly has a bunch of needs painted all over him and we said to him at the welcoming door we're so glad you're here you need forgiveness of sins like that is that is offensive is it not it's it's kind of like that I mean I'm seeing a lot of stuff in the in the press uh, particularly in American media uh, around the rejection of kind of hopes and prayers it's kind of this tokenism, kind of this nice thing to say, but it clearly doesn't mesh with the needs that are right in front of you. Like, we don't just want platitudes, we want action. And what is Jesus doing? Offering this forgiveness of sins. He's out of touch. The offense is on two levels. Firstly, he hasn't addressed the obvious need before him. He's kind of off in ethereal spiritual land. But, but secondly, the religious people in the room, they pick up on this kind of religious offense. How dare he? He is blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. And you're also wondering, what sins are we talking about? The sins of him digging the hole in the roof? Surely he should pay for that, right? He should, well, forgive him. That's nice. 
But if we think about kind of this, this hopes and prayers platitude, as we think about the offense of Jesus not meeting the obvious need, it's worth asking the question of what is this sin? Is, it, is his paralysis the result of some sin that Jesus is addressing? I mean, that's a horrible question to ask, but it would have been a question in the room, I imagine. The disciples had a real privilege to walk alongside Jesus. You know, disciple means to, to learn somebody. You're not just learning about someone. You're not learning about some philosophy or idea. You're learning someone. To be a disciple of Jesus is to learn him. And as he walks around, as he does stuff, the disciples have this unique opportunity to, to say, hey, Jesus, what was that about? And later on, say in John's gospel, the disciples ask Jesus as they come across someone who is blind, and they, say the, they ask the question, the kind of this demands. They say, Jesus, was this person sinful or their parents sinful that he was born blind? And Jesus says, no. Categorically, no. We don't get to draw these simple causal links. The biggest story of Scripture is that we are in a broken and sinful world. That ever since Adam and Eve said to God, we'll do it our way, God said, okay, you'll have it your way. Not just kind of like set free, but also God is really upset with that and he's angry. And so we live in the drama of this world that is broken all the way through between our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and our relationship with the world. And we experience that in all kinds of ways. And despite God's anger at this, despite him leaving us to ourselves in some ways, the drama of scripture is him pursuing us all the way down which leads us to this very predicament. There is God in the flesh, in the middle of suffering, having it lowered right before him. How is Jesus going to respond? Well, he responds with the forgiveness of sins. Still weird. Now we've got to keep tracking to kind of see what he does with it. He says to those in the room who are troubled by what he's saying, what's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? It's kind of a tricky question. Jesus loves asking tricky questions. What is easier? I mean, I could say your sins are forgiven. That's an unfalsifiable statement. It's spiritual. You're like, that's nice, Michael, thank you. But it's also the impossible statement, because who am I to forgive your sins? Nonetheless, it's unfalsifiable. But to say get up and take your mat and walk, that is evidence right there that there is power, that there is transformation. And so Jesus says that you might know that the Son of Man, referring to himself, has authority, has power, has ability on earth to forgive sins. I tell you, and he points, he looks at the person, the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. And that's what happened. He got up, and the crowd, how do, you, how do you make sense of that? There would have been no doubt a, a kind of a significant silence as people's heads just imploded. Who, who is this Jesus who surprises us with his forgiveness of sins as the first kind of call of action, and then actually shows he has some kind of power? And he even says this is power that you might know that he... He has power to forgive sins. Jesus is gracious in his response. He, he's, 
His primary kind of concern is forgiveness of sins, and yet he also has compassion and power to heal. There is a surprise at every turn here. He is gracious with us. He is compassionate with us. He cares for our real needs. And yet he uses that as a window to show that there is a deeper need at the same time. And that is, a, that is sometimes an offensive surprise. Now we're pretty good in kind of post-Christian um, humanism styles, caring for those around us. So that, that is a good kind of even, you might even say, a Judeo-Christian kind of value to care and to be compassionate. And we, we're all over that as a society. But to go that next step and say, actually, that's part of a deeper need that you need to have addressed. When Jesus says, actually, I forgive you your sins, that is, that is a surprise, an offensive surprise. We need to kind of connect both, both compassion and conviction here. So, so that if we just kind of live in the realms of hopes and prayers, we actually might forget to address the real needs of those around us. So back to the fires, which we can't help but escape. There is a real need to directly respond to that, to care for the immediacy of those that, are, um, that, uh, that have been affected, whether it's be the volunteers in their exhaustion, whether it be lost property, uh, loss of income, loss of loved ones. That is deeply troubling and needs more than platitudes. It, it needs a response. And Jesus is saying, not only do that, but follow that all the way through to the hope of hopes. That is, there is a trajectory here that we know that that's not how things ought to be. But it's also part of a bigger thing, the kingdom of God. And the access to that is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus demonstrates to us compassion and conviction. He cares for our needs that are physical and immediate. But he also cares for our ultimatum. I say that because he's not just walking around handing out free tickets to heaven. Sometimes Christianity can kind of get in that direction. He deeply cares for those around him. And yet he also has a conviction of something much bigger and much deeper. Forgiveness of sins. The scandal of this kind of keeps going. As we get to... Um, it's working again, thanks, Frank. Um, as we get to this next episode, we're again taken to kind of a crowd before Jesus. Uh, and kind of, you know, every kind of moment where Jesus says something with power, every time he does something with power, the crowd draws bigger, as you'd expect, right? Who is this Jesus as the crowd follows and inquires? And so we now, um, we're now at Lakeside. A large crowd is following us, is verse 13. And he began to teach them because that's why he came. He keeps teaching them. And he calls out to one person particularly, Levi, son of Alphaeus, who's quite possibly actually Matthew, the writer of the first gospel. Sometimes people go by two names. We're not entirely sure, but quite possible that it's Matthew. Nonetheless, a tax collector. And Jesus says, follow me. And he does. I'm always struck by this kind of follow me and everyone, like people drop stuff and just kind of, what's that about? No doubt Levi would have been hearing some of the things about Jesus. So it's not totally out of the blue. Uh, he's inspired. He sees something in Jesus that he's never seen before. 
And it's so powerful that he, he models this kind of faith and repentance. That is, kind of, he turns his back on everything that he's ever known. He kind of leaves his tax-collecting table and all the wealth and status and drama associated with that and, and starts following Jesus. Repentance, turn away and follow faith. See, Jesus' words demand action. When Jesus says, follow me, it's not a case of, oh, I'll think about it or I'll kind of, I'll come back to you or I'll see what else is out there. It actually demands a response. It's either, yes, I'm going to follow you, or it's, no, I'm not. Now, if I was Jesus, I would, um, I'd be pretty keen to get the A-team, right? Like, if I'm Jesus and I'm rolling out the God, God's kingdom project, I, I want kind of like, I want the, the movers and the shakers. I want the people that can actually do some really cool stuff and kind of, you know, make good of kind of like the grandeur of the kingdom of God. Jesus has a different idea, and I'm constantly rebuked by the way Jesus does things. See, Jesus goes to this tax collector who is not A team, not B team, not C team. He's in the offensive team, right? Because he is such an offense to, to the Jews. Why? To give you a little bit of an insight into just how offensive. Take this from the Mishnah, which is um, uh, kind of the, a collection of the oral traditions, almost like a commentary around the Old Testament scriptures. And in that, uh, the Mishnah says, if tax collectors entered a house, the house is unclean. Okay, but read a little bit later. If thieves entered a house, only that part in which the feet of the thieves have stepped is unclean. Okay, so we've got thieves. Everyone knows they're bad. Just the bits that they touch unclean. Tax collector, everything unclean, right? Why? Because tax collectors are kind of like Jewish brothers who have almost defected to kind of, you know, to make it really obvious that the Romans are, are ruling over the Jews. They're now working for the other side. And not only uh, every time do they interact with the tax collector, the Jews are reminded that they're, they're being ruled over, but the tax collectors also take a chunk on the side. They are wealthy because they not only tax their brothers and sisters and are rewarded by the overlords, but they steal on the side. They are scum. So what on earth is Jesus doing calling one of these to be on his team? He doesn't just say, you need to repent and get your life together. He says, follow me. He says, I want you on my team. That is scandalous. And yet the scandal continues because he goes to Levi's house with all of Levi's sinful tax-collecting buddies, and they have dinner. And so we enter another house full of tax collectors and sinners this time. But Jesus is not standing up in the middle of that to preach. Although he should, right? He should call them to repentance. He just is seen to be eating with them. To the point where those on the outside of this dinner are saying, what is he doing? This, this friend of sinners, I love that description, this friend of sinners See, the act of communal eating is highly recognized in Middle Eastern culture as an outward expression of friendship. I experienced this a little while ago when I was in Lakemba. I grew up in Bankstown, so I wasn't too far from kind of what I was used to. And I kind of spent a week meeting with Muslims and talking to them about our faith and how they understood the world. And it was an amazing week. On the, last, on the weekend of that week, I just went to a local park. I felt like the only Anglo in the park, and there was a bunch of like amazing smells. There's all these barbecues that are kind of going, and there's just lots of people and I walk up to one of these barbecues to just to say hi. And 
if that was an Anglo, I don't want to be too racial here, but if that was an Anglo barbecue, they'd be like, what the heck are you doing? What do you want? Instead, they respond, these, these Lebanese uh, men and women, or particularly the men, because I'm not allowed to speak to the women in that context, um, they, they, re- they respond with, please take a seat. And not just any seat, but the kind of the head of this table that they had set up. And then they go to the barbecue to give me the first of the meats, which happened to be camel heart. Um, it was nice. It was, I didn't have, just have to kind of smile. I actually enjoyed it. But I felt celebrated. I felt honored. They extended to me friendship. Now, we just don't get kind of how deep the kind of expression of friendship communal eating is, but it's massive in the culture that we're reading about. And maybe a rebuke to the way we do it too. And there is Jesus sitting at this table with these tax collectors and sinners. And that is scandalous because he also claims to be the son of God. As we go through Mark's gospel, here is God among us, but he's not doing all the religious things. He's not, he doesn't seem to be honoring what it means for God to be holy. That is separated. Perfect. He's got nothing to do with us, right? Because we are sinful and fleshly. We're meant to kind of be kind of moved into that space, not for God to dwell among the messiness. And when you speak to Muslims about that, they really get the offense of that. How could God possibly have anything to do with the fleshly, with the unholy? And yet there is Jesus. Perhaps there are similar distinctions in our culture. We're kind of like we're told that our private beliefs are not to be displayed in public or kind of the whole post-Christian kind of leftist movement and kind of then the fundamentalist kind of, you know, old fuddy-duddies conservatives. Like we, we love kind of breaking up kind of people into these groups and buckets that we're not supposed to interact across. Jesus has stopped that. One of the things I like about Alpha, which is starting in a couple of weeks, is it's deliberately designed to create a space where not just people hear about Jesus, but are able to share what they really think. A space where we can do relationships and, and, and develop friendships with people who are different to ourselves, that we might together explore who Jesus is. But the other thing I find absolutely remarkable about this kind of this, this friend of sinners is what it means for friendship. Now, we love doing friendship where uh, you're like me and I'm like you, and we can have fun together because it's easy and you know, we'll just hang out like mates. But what this kind of friendship is pointing to is something very different. A friend who is completely other. And that kind of, that rubs against us. That causes offense sometimes, lots of times. And yet there is something that inspires me as I look to this kind of friendship. A friendship that kind of calls me out of myself. That doesn't just affirm me, but shows me something different. I've been reading this book that I think is the book of last year for me, although I haven't quite finished it, so I don't know if I can get that title. But it's James K. Smith. He writes, he writes a book called On the Road with St. Augustine. St. Augustine is a 4th century theologian, and he, he kind of, he's been reading the Confessions, which is kind of Augustine's um, very heartfelt book about, like journal almost, put on display. And he pulls out from, this, this is a quote directly from Augustine, from Book 8 of Confessions. And in this context, Augustine has been interacting with a number of friends who he's been sharing his struggles with. These are friends who are not just like him, but are also very different to him. And his reflection is this. While he, a friend, was speaking, 
Lord, you turned my attention back to myself. You took me up from, my behind, from behind my own back where I had placed myself because I did not wish to observe myself. And you set before me my face so that I should see how vile I was. And he's very emphatic here. How twisted and filthy, covered in sores and ulcers. And I looked and was appalled, but there was no way of escaping from myself. Now, it's, it's old school. It's fourth century translated. Um, but you get this picture of a friend who is able to help you look at yourself without your self-bias. James K. Smith reflects, these friends are friends to Augustine, not because they come with affirming praise. That's stuff we do really easily and well. But because they love Augustine enough to bring him face to face with himself, with who he is not, and unapologetically hold up a substantive vision of who he's called to be. Then he writes, a friend is not an enabler. Love doesn't always look like agreement. That is a friendship that some of us might be unfamiliar with. It's a friendship that I've been challenging myself to explore, and it's hard. I don't want a friend to kind of call me out, to, to sort of remove my, my self-justification. I need, I need a, a deep sense of trust and love to be able to trust a friend to be able to do that. And that's quite the journey to go on. And yet there is Jesus, who's actually sitting with, being with, being questioned by, being explored, interrogated, being enjoyed by these sinners. Jesus is creating a space to do a friendship of sorts that is very other, that doesn't just come with affirmation and compassion, but also comes with conviction as he calls people to faith and repentance. Ultimately, we read in John 15, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Here is a friendship where Jesus lays down his life because you are, according to Augustine, twisted, filthy, covered in sores and ulcers, ultimately sinful. You are offensive before God. I am offensive before God. We think not because we self-justify. Yet the biblical description of us is that we are broken all the way down. We are not perfect and can't just walk up to God and high-five him. It is such a scandal that we think Jesus is like us, all casual and kind of hanging out. But what we see of Jesus is he is one with power. He represents the Holy One, the Messiah. And yet he has compassion. All the way to the cross to remove the offense that exists between us and God, that we might commune with him, that we might belong with him, that we might enjoy friendship of friendships with God himself. Jesus finishes this section with those that are finding this quite scandalous, with those famous words, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He's answering, why, why are you doing this? Why are you a friend of sinners? He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And what I find remarkable about this statement is the people who have the kind of find this the most scandalous are the ones who think they are most righteous. They are the ones that are modeling the same problem all the way back to Adam and Eve. We don't need you, God. We've got this covered. I've been through your list. 
I've done it all, I'm okay. And throughout Mark's gospel, the ones who think they are righteous are the ones who are revealed to be least. The ones who are, are seen to be the one who are in most need of the doctor. This place, this church, it's not a club for the holier than thou. It's a league of the guilty who impossibly commune through the scandal of grace. One of the things that I am fearful of in church is that homogenousness of like we all look like one another and we've, we all look like we've got our stuff together. When I look at kind of the people that gather around Jesus, who he calls to himself, it is a motley crew. Friends, we are called into something miraculous. Communing through the scandal of grace. And as we come together, we are invited to, to feast with Jesus. To enjoy friendship with him and every blessing that comes from calling him a friend. Which leads us to the final section. Because Jesus actually uses this kind of illustration of, of, uh, of a wedding. A bunch of people come up to Jesus who are fasting and they say, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? And he says, it's simple. He says, those that are longing for the bridegroom will fast, but when he is with them, they don't. They celebrate. That is, there is all this anticipation and longing for before the wedding moment. But in the wedding moment, that's not a time to fast. That's not a time to long for. It's a time to enjoy and celebrate. And nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us to fast. But fasting is a part of the Old Testament story. People fast in the Old Testament to express repentance, to grieve hardship, and to seek God's favor. And I'll tell you what, as we smell the smoke in our nostrils, as we see what we're seeing on TV, if ever there was a time to fast, to grieve, and to seek God's favor, this would be one of them. While we're not commanded to fast, there is some kind of goodness in, in kind of coming before God in sackcloth and ashes, as it were, in the Old Testament, to, to desperately long for grace, especially if we've tasted it, especially if we have enjoyed God's favor and his blessing and we long for his mercy and his grace to be known across this parched land. Now, we're in this kind of now but not yet thing, right? Where, where we are saved. We are brought into the kingdom of the Son. But not yet face to face. And so in some ways, the bridegroom has gone. And yet we are deeply connected through the Spirit to be friends with God as it were now. Now, I say that because it's not a simple case of Jesus has gone, therefore we ought to fast all the time. But in this now and not yet, it might be worthwhile to explore what it means to fast, to long for his grace to be made known across this desperate nation. The only scandal left, as I track the logic of this passage, is the scandal of, of being around Jesus, of being in the crowd, or even being some kind of friend with him at the friend of sinners table. And not respond to him, to leave this gift of grace on the floor, as it were. That is the ultimate scandal that's left out of the logic of this passage. 
I was reminded of a scene from Goodwill Hunting, which is like, I don't know, 1990 something, right? Is, is, is it safe to use that? Like, I'm going to go with it. Um, so there's, there's Chucky, and there's Will uh, in the center of the picture behind. Uh, yeah, and Will is a, is a genius, and yet he's grown up in hard times. And he's kind of, he's, he's thinking about trashing all of the good opportunities laid out before him as a genius so that he might be one of the boys, so that he might stay with his friend Chuck. And his friend Chuck is kind of like, look, you're my best friend, so don't take this the wrong way. But in 20 years, if you're still living here, coming over to my house to watch the Patriots game, still working construction, I'll kill you. <laughs> That's not a threat, it's a fact, I'll kill you. Will's like, what are you talking about? And Will goes on, or Chucky goes on to say, you are sitting on a lottery ticket. How dare you not change? I've got to paraphrase because there are so many swear words in this movie. Um, but I, kinda, I, I get it, right? If you are sitting on a lottery ticket, if you have been shown this gift of grace and do not respond by following Jesus in faith and repentance, then that is the scandal of scandals. Because this gift is a gift. You have come to encounter the Jesus who deeply cares for your predicament, has compassion on what you are working through in the present, and shows you something deeper that secures your eternity, shows you a kingdom where there will be no more tears and suffering. And he says, this is for you. I forgive you your sins. That is the scandal of scandals to reject that. Jesus says in this kind of strange sort of metaphor at the end uh, about wineskins, no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. That is, you can't just take this news of Jesus and just bolt it on to what you already got. You've got to create new space, new wineskins, new life all around Jesus because he's asking us to follow him. And he promises that your life will not be left unchanged because of his conviction and compassion. He invites you in to receive the gift. The scandal of scandals would be to reject the gift or to, to just go about your life like nothing's changed, like the Lord of Lords hasn't touched your life. As I look back on my life, there are seasons where I've just domesticated Jesus, where he looks a lot like me, and I'm very happy with that. And those are the seasons that my life plateaus as a Christian. But when I encounter this Jesus, the one who speaks and acts with authority, the one who truly forgives my sins despite knowing me all the way down, when I encounter that Jesus, life is a little bit crazy. But it's profound because I am loved by the one who loves me in my brokenness and who is at work in my life for his glory. Let me pray. Father, uh, you, know, you know what we know. Uh, you know what we think we need and you deeply care for those things. Yet you also know the things that we hide from others and from ourselves, and you love us still. Father, keep drawing us closer to you that we might experience in new levels of magnitude your goodness, your friendship, your love, your compassion, all the while your conviction as you call us to something greater, as you call us to follow you. Our Father, would you speak to us this morning? 
Show us something of ourselves, of yourself, that we might be courageous and trust you to take another step forward. In the liberating grace, knowing that you love us and you are at work in us in all things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.